0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. This morning, David Windsor and I speak with Annie Howard and Kelsey Boyer. Annie is a physical therapist and an expert on concussion and brain injury. Kelsey is a professional snowboarder and the founder of the nonprofit called Save a Brain. The pair are partnering to provide education awareness and treatment they're ready to present all of this information to various local athletic teams then acclaimed chef writer which is different than a food writer andrew friedman he's the author of the new book called the dish the lives and labor behind one plate of food you'll never look at a restaurant meal the same way again this particular meal from a restaurant in chicago and the dish it's dry-aged beef tomato and sorrel all that coming up this hour on the mountain life
1: welcome back to the mountain life i'm david windsor
0: and i'm lynn ware
1: Peak. our next guests are two women who fought brain injuries and now concentrate on helping others heal from concussion and brain injury physical therapist annie howard founder and local business of Happy Brain, along with professional snowboarder, Kelsey Boyer, who is a founder of local nonprofit called Save a Brain. They joined to tell their stories, unfortunate firsthand knowledge of brain injuries, and how they are teaming up to provide education and resources for various local ski teams. Annie and Kelsey, welcome to The Mountain Life.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: What a great concept and organization you guys are working on. Unfortunately, in this world of professional sports, I kind of feel like this is something that doesn't get brought up until it's actually an incident that has happened to you or a loved one. And so it kind of goes under the rug as far as through the training and the education process. So how has the overall reception been, Annie, throughout the process of this and educating the the young athletes coming up?
2: It's been great people have been super receptive. A lot of the local organizations in Park City and uh, we have something set up with the Snowbird free ski team coming up in November have really been warm and welcoming and just wanting us to come on in and educate and get their athletes in for baseline testing.
1: And Kelsey, what do you think it is about this entire realm this this world of brain injury and concussions in these sports that is it's lacking the knowledge is it the lack of money the lack of education what is it that it's it's still kind of a new concept as far as the discussion of it
3: i feel like you nailed it like lack of money and education and i don't know like personally speaking for me you know i feel like brain injuries are like the black sheep of the family that like you don't want to know about them almost so it's almost out of like fear as well and I just kind of feel like people are yeah, starting to link the two together of mental health and brain health and now want to be educated.
0: Well, you both have had multiple maybe brushes with concussion and brain injury. Kelsey is a professional snowboarder, Annie as a ski mountaineer. We had Annie on the show, I don't know, was it about a year ago or something to talk about your business, Happy Brain, and also about your injury. But I'd love to ask both of you to just take us through your own personal experience with TBI, traumatic brain injury or concussion. Annie, let's start with you.
2: Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I grew up active playing sports and probably had a few hits here and there, but maybe about 2018, I was on a ski mountaineering trip in Chile and It was the end of a long day, big volcano, and I took a fall and tore ligament in my knee and also hit my head. And so, you know, it's interesting because at the time, the most painful piece was the knee injury. It was very obvious. And uh, so the head injury piece kind of took a little bit of a backseat until after I had surgery and started to recover and kind of started to realize, you know, things just don't feel normal and so i was already pt at the time i'd been a pt i think for maybe at least eight years and started to seek out concussion care and started to realize that yeah there it's really hard to find really good and specific concussion care i think traditionally the model has been with a lot of providers kind of working in different silos who all have different expertise, but not kind of coming together and being able to integrate the different systems. And then also a method of sort of generalized exercise. And certainly in the last, you know, five to 10 years, there's been a huge change in concussion rehab and in, you know, research in what people are doing. But so my personal struggles really led me to sort of dive deep. I was fortunate enough to meet a physical therapist um, that was able to help me and then sort of helped me to sort of see that all of these things are absolutely treatable and then helped me to sort of um, dig myself in deeper and find different things that work for me as a clinician. Uh, So it's been really exciting for me to sort of have this personal journey and then being able to help other people and then now having my own business here in Park City.
3: And Kelsey how about you? Uh same as Annie in a way obviously personal experience. But yeah in 2016 I was uh competing in slope style competitions for snowboarding and I had too many head injuries in a short amount of time and I think it was like I don't know maybe eight head hits in a 2 month period but one of them specifically was worse than all of the others and I ended up going 2 weeks with a bleeding brain. I went to like five doctors and nobody caught the brain bleed, but my roommates kept being like, something is wrong. Like you're not acting normal. Like you're not sleeping, but I pretty much, it was like an out-of-body experience where I don't remember those two weeks, but yeah, they forced me into the emergency room and they took a CAT scan. Again, they said, everything looks fine, but we'll take one just in case. And yeah, luckily they caught a brain bleed. They said, your brain has shifted 11 millimeters and you wouldn't have made it through the night yeah, and that's when I kind of, yeah, emergency brain surgery pretty much had to stop competing. And, yeah, my life kind of took a a rogue, unplanned route. And that's kind of when I just, like, yeah, dove into recovery and realized I wasn't given any support, education, resources. It was lonely and dark. And it's the number one injury in the world, and especially in our sports. And I just kind of was like, this is not right. Like, we need to like really fill this massive void and that's yeah, that's when i started a nonprofit.
1: so i used to compete in the big mountain tour and there's not too many preventive measures you can do obviously you wear a helmet but i started competing with a mouth guard which they say can help with concussions as well but i'm curious kelsey as far as like preventative measures is there anything we can do for the other than these helmets as math guards or is it all kind of a educational component around if you hit your head, this is what you need to do.
3: I'm always like, I'm not a doctor. I don't like, I'm like, I don't know exactly everything, but obviously from my own experience, it's what I've learned is like, I wear helmet, mouth guard, butt pads to snowboard. Uh, My brain surgeon said that a mouth guard was almost more important than a helmet because of impact, which is really an interesting fact that he shared with me, but I don't know. I think it's like you're I I always compare, especially in the mountains to like avalanches where it's like, you know, you get equipment, you get the knowledge, and then you go out trying to mitigate the risk of that happening. But if it is to happen, you know what to do. And I feel like it's the same way for head injuries, like you get the preventative equipment, you get the knowledge and you just go out and try to mitigate it. But if it is to happen, you, you know, you know how to move forward and you know what signs to look out for.
1: So, Annie, I, I assume in these conversations you're having with these ski teams, a lot of it comes down to the parents and letting them know of the education and the coaches as well as just friends of athletes. And, and if there's, like Kelsey said, like her friends were like, something is off and just recognizing that there's something. So what are, what are the conversations you're having with these these parents and these coaches in these with these programs to help the individuals and the young athletes to, to recognize when something's wrong?
2: Yeah. So Kelsey and I actually are, um, kind of have a little education program that we're combining on called the Brain Factory. The idea is to help people understand what a concussion is. A lot of people don't quite understand, you know, why can't I see it on imaging? You know, what is it? I hit my head, but but why don't I feel good? So helping people to understand that it is a functional injury, but it's also something where the neurons in our brain are stretching and breaking, and it causes this energy crisis in our brain. Um, so helping people to understand that if something does happen, what are some immediate things that we can do? So currently the research is pointing to um, consuming a high protein, especially within the first few days. Relative rest, so kind of the older method was sitting in a dark room. So we're out of that. We do want a certain amount of rest. So kind of structuring like a little bit of this and a little bit of that, getting outside, getting a little bit of exercise. You know, there's a lot of other things through diet, nutrient supplements, things like that. And then helping people to understand, well, how do I know if my friend or my child has had a concussion, right? Like in Kelsey's experience, her friend saying something's not right. There are a couple of uh, standardized tests that can be done, some ocular motor visual screening tools that people can use to help to to do on your friend or on your child so that you know what the eyes are doing or what's not normal, to know, okay, do I need to bring somebody else in? Uh, Helping people to understand what the red flags are, things that are, you absolutely need to go to the hospital. This is indicative of a brain relief. This is indicative of something super serious. And then helping people to understand the importance of having a concussion baseline test. So knowing what your baseline is with a healthy brain or at this point in your life so that if something does happen we have something to compare your new normal to to know is is this something that has changed or is this just you know maybe your eyes have always haven't worked totally in tandem together and that could be completely fine you've managed your whole life you don't get headaches with reading but is was that your baseline or is that something that's new
0: So my son was in ninth grade and was a ski racer and had a really significant concussion. And he did spend like a month in a dark room. And I felt like even if there was a crack in the curtain, you know, letting a little bit of light in, he couldn't handle it. And it's interesting, Annie, to hear that the protocol is sort of moving away from that. What is that reason? Because I felt like he could not, leave that room maybe it what maybe it was more like three weeks but yeah
2: what what's going on there so the idea is that if you take away all of your sensory systems then it's so much harder to integrate back so if you go to the movies on a sunny day in the middle of the day and you come out and you're like whoa those bright lights so it's it's like that all the time so obviously you don't want to torture somebody and just force them to sit in the bright sun. And that wouldn't be good for healing of the brain, but the idea is to integrate little bits at a time. So the current method now is not to just sort of have somebody wear sunglasses all the time, have them wear headphones all the time. There's certainly a time and a place where we need that to function and we need our brain to heal a little bit, but they're definitely, they're considered compensatory strategies. And so we want to sort of find that sweet spot of limiting, but not completely taking everything away.
0: Okay, gotcha. Kelsey, I'm wondering in your nonprofit, Save a Brain, as you've been going around to various, especially youth teams, winter sport teams, or maybe just sport in general teams, what are you finding in terms of resources? Because it feels like we had resources, some of those resources left town, and now the two of you teaming up are kind of bringing on a new front of resource. What are you finding?
3: Personally, I feel like the resources are lacking in a sense of like knowing where to go after it's happened. Uh, that's like a huge one where people just kind of suffer because they're just like, I don't know where to go, or they go to their primary care and don't get the attention that they, you know, are looking for Yeah, kind of help. But so that's been a big one is, yeah, people are like, what treatment facility can I trust? Can I go to? And yeah, that's why finding Annie was incredible. I was seriously so ecstatic because yeah, for us, we're just like how we're kind of like the, the translators, I feel like of brain injuries where I'm just like, okay, what do you need? Here's our resources tab, search your area and see like where to go because we know these doctors and we trust them.
1: So I want to touch back on what Annie said. I'm Really curious about the this high protein diet. What factor does that have with concussions?
2: So when you hit your head and your Neurons stretch and break it causes your brain to go into this sort of energy crisis it has to do with giving your brain and body back that energy to start to heal so the the current recommendations for kind of the 24 to 72 hour period and ongoing is real foods. So nothing processed, high protein, drinking lots and lots of water, even adding in a little bit of salt. So in the form of an electrolyte, so maybe like a liquid IV or element or any of those uh, powders that you would put in drinks, because what that helps to do is to increase your blood volume. So for all of us, we have a third of our blood lives in our legs and it, your um, body transport system can become sluggish. So what we want is to increase the blood that is flowing up to our heart and to our brain. So a little bit of salt will do that.
1: So Kelsey, coming from the the extreme world, the slope style and all that, it's, it's at least when I was growing up and doing this, it was kind of a, for lack of a better word, like an outlaw culture. and there wasn't a lot of education around injuries and, and I know that the sport has really progressed and there's been a lot, you know, there's a lot more resources as far as the U S ski team or snowboard team. And, and, and there are more athletes, people are training every day versus going to the bar or something afterwards. And, but I'm, I'm curious about the reception of the the younger culture, the, the really uh, predominant athletes in this industry. Are they, are they receptive and responsive to this education or are they kind of blowing it off? Like it's one of those things that it's not going to happen to me type.
3: I feel like it's 50, 50. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen both. Right. Like I see the people that are like, yeah, can't happen to me. And honestly I was the same way. So I'm just like, you know, I get that, but I think now it's kind of just like versus blowing it off, like educate yourself, not just for yourself, but yeah, for your friends, like the people that you surround yourself with and I feel like people are also correlating mental health and brain health, right? So mental health is huge right now in our space and athletes are wanting to have optimal mental health. And in order to achieve that, it's also through brain health and people are putting those two together. So it's like, yeah, the scales 50, 50, but personally we've been, Saber Brain's been around for three years now. And I feel like there was like really nothing back then. And the needle's definitely shifting, which is cool to see. I feel like it's with anything else. It's, gonna continue to be a fight for people to understand but it's it's cool to see Kelsey I'm wondering with you let's see did you say eight hits in six months it was it was worse I'm like yeah six months sounds great it was like eight hits two months or something that's right and then this brain bleed which
0: really as you were saying if your roommates hadn't picked that out you might not be here We always wonder about the long-term effects of TBI and concussion. What are those long-term effects for you, if any?
3: Yeah, my recovery has been very, you know, like a wave up and down. I suffered pretty bad severely for the first four years of my injury where I felt like I, I couldn't find help. I didn't know where to go. I was suffering. I had like really bad insomnia, mood swings. Couldn't move my eyes without them hurting. So that was just a few of them right there, really bad ringing in the ears. Finally found a treatment facility, got help, and pretty much reversed all of my symptoms, which was really incredible. And that's just, it just shows how, you know, the brain can rewire and heal if you just like treat it like any other muscle. But now it's been seven years since my injury and I had a whole other wave of symptoms come through this past year. Um, I accidentally like, knocked my noggin uh uh this winter and I think it it made it a little bit upset again I don't know I I truthfully felt like at one point maybe I would be done like healing from my brain injury and life would just go on but now I'm learning like this is something that I'm gonna live with for the rest of my life and symptoms will ebb and flow and I just need to kind of ride that wave but yeah now again with the seven year symptoms it's kind of been more Eye issues, and yes, yeah, still kind of ringing it, ringing in the ears. Mm-hmm.
0: And Annie, as a physical therapist who specializes in concussion and brain injury, what do you say to someone like Kelsey who, to give her hope, to make her feel like, yes, you might be dealing with these, some of these symptoms, and they may recur if you just bump your head later on in life. But w- what is the
2: hope that you can give her? well um you know understanding that these things are real i think a lot of people feel like this is this sort of invisible injury and you know they say they feel a certain way and people say oh well you look fine um so really just kind of reassuring her that it is real and i do think that there are lots of things that can be done it's hard to know and and we're still learning so much and i think as far as research goes research and concussion is relatively new so knowing sort of at what point is your rehab plateau but certainly if somebody hasn't had treatment for a long time it's always a good idea to get them in and sort of see what's going on treatment things have changed even you know in the last five years even last two or three there's been newer things coming out so there are always little things to look at. And then also sort of wellness things that we can all do, all of us can do in our lives, right? Like to improve the like one or 2% here and the one or 2% there, kind of getting, getting good foods into our body, getting good habits and good lifestyle changes.
1: So as with every organization, every business, it, a lot of it started because there's, there's a gap in the market and, or there's a lot of passion behind the founder. And so with happy brain and save a brain for both of you, what, what is the mission? What is the goal? Where, where do you want to take this in the next three to five years?
2: That's a good question. Um, I think, think we're both still, you know, relatively new and, um, kind of pivoting and figuring out what's working and what's not working. Um, But for me as a physical therapist, I really just want to continue to educate people that there is hope. There are a lot of things that you can do uh, to feel better. You really don't have to just sort of suffer in silence or just sort of tolerate and grin and bear it. Education is huge for me. And teaming up with Kelsey has been awesome because um, I think that this organization is, um, you know, they're, they're real people. They're out there, they've had the injuries, they sort of know how to communicate with people and just a really, really great resource for everybody to have.
3: Yeah, and I I feel like to piggyback what she just said, it's definitely as an organization, I mean, I have no experience running a nonprofit. (laughs) So that's a challenge within itself, but what's been really, I feel like the motivation to keep going is that it is needed that we do have a community now that needs the help, the education, the understanding, resources, everything. So for us in the next three to five years, yeah, we just, we wanna keep just pretty much like, you know, breaking the stigma of these invisible injuries and being the spot that people can go to when they feel lost, when they, you know, when they have nowhere else to go, we wanna be that hub that we can change the, like narrative, spread awareness, just kind of be a safe space for everyone
1: obviously brain injuries don't discriminate against anyone. And so, uh, but you know, a lot of the focus from what I understand is, is based around these ski organizations, these programs, these snowboard programs. Do you have a goal to, to branch out into whether it be the high school or club sports for soccer and football and basketball and, and, uh, and educating the youth in every sport?
3: Yeah, I'm, that's been our biggest thing is like, yeah, that, like you said they don't discriminate. You know, traumatic brain injuries are the number one injury in the entire world like even outside of sports and for us, yeah, we're just like surfing, mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding, skateboarding, football, baseball, like everything in soccer, it's relevant. Um so yeah, in the next few years, like our goal is to definitely expand and just kind of keep keep expanding the the wider net. It seems to me Kelsey that you both have a big
0: job in front of you. And that is the supply chain of information about concussion, right? And and treatment as well. And so I'm wondering how you and Annie are interfacing with healthcare providers so people know so they can have stand a better chance of being recommended to Save a Brain and or physical therapy.
3: For sure. Uh, I that's been a journey for us because obviously yeah it's like we want to meet with the professionals again like we're just the translators like we're just trying to be there for people but for us we found I like I always talk with it. where I'm like doctors and anyone involved with brain injuries are so incredibly smart and I was just like but the words don't make sense to you know like I'm like break it down in layman's terms right so we can all understand and learn it so yeah like for us it's like the ripple effect is partnering with treatment facilities physical therapists like Annie and then we have concussion guides that are for eight-year-olds and up to understand so maybe it's like okay you hit your head at practice here's a concussion guide to take home for you and your parents so they can also understand so it's like it's definitely like taking us working with these facilities to provide those, you know, broken down, easy to like digestible resources.
0: And Annie, would you want to add to that?
2: Yeah. So I've been spending a bit of time trying to go around and um, talk to physicians and talk to Instacares and um, the at the ski resorts up here in Park City. They've um, the ski patrol is combined with the Instacares at the base of the resorts. So I've been spending a bit of time going and talking to them and just sort of letting them know. Um, that I am in town and you know what what physical therapy can do. Cause I think a lot of people don't really know what physical therapy can do, um, letting them know that I do now take health insurance and that it is a really good resource and really can help people.
1: Love that. Well, ladies, this is a, an incredible initiative you guys are working on. And I'm sure you got a lot of challenges ahead of you, but it's it's all for a good cause annie howard and kelsey boyer with the happy brain and save a brain and we are just happy to have you guys in our community and providing good services for those out there fighting the good fight of the outdoor sports thank you so much for joining us in the mountain life today
3: thanks for having us thank you so much for
2: having us such a pleasure
0: welcome back to the mountain life i'm lynn ware
1: peak and i'm david windsor
0: You sit down at your favorite restaurant and order your favorite meal. How often do you think about how that meal got to the table? Our next guest is chef writer, Andrew Friedman. And he woke up one morning after a dream and decided to take one dish in one restaurant and profile the people in the restaurant and beyond its walls, whose lives and work culminate on the plate. From the farmer or rancher, to the producer, to the truck driver that brings the food to the restaurant. From the server, the chef, to the dishwasher. He tells the story of how it all fits together in his new book, The Dish, the lives and labor behind one plate of food. Andrew Friedman, welcome to The Mountain Light.
4: Thank you very much. It's great to be with you.
0: Well, what is the difference between a food writer and a chef writer? Oh, we're getting right to it.
4: Um, Well, this has been an ongoing campaign of mine for about a decade. uh, uh, When I realized I'm much more interested in the people than I am the recipes or the food. I used to be a cookbook collaborator. That's how I got into this world. And and then I transitioned into writing books about chefs. I mean, obviously, food is part of that. And at some point, I started referring to myself as a, a chef writer. And I was trying to make it catch on. I think there are other people who fit that category, and this is the first publisher who's actually, you know, let me put it on the my bio in the book and in the promotional materials. So it's starting to show up in reviews, and I'm very happy about it. And I hope someday to be joined by other chef writers. Right now, it's just me, and it's very lonely.
0: <laughs> it's lonely at the top, huh? Um, so normally, when people are writing about Food, we celebrate the chefs, right? But you talk about the scores and scores of unsung heroes, Andrew. Who are those unsung heroes?
4: Yeah, and I should say the dish in the book is a very simple dish. It's a it's a, a dry aged strip loin of beef with a half of a partially dehydrated uh, brandy wine tomato, a red wine sauce, and uh, a couple of sorrel leaves. I mean, that's the whole dish. Um, well, in the restaurant, you have the dishwasher. You have uh, a couple of line, line cooks. You have a sous chef who is kind of second in command during service. You have a chef de cuisine who's kind of the person who runs the kitchen day to day. Then you have the chef owners. You have the server. And then beyond the restaurant, I, 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 you know, I didn't even myself know this, but I would say each ingredient it probably takes one. To three dozen people to get it from the time it starts being grown or raised uh, until it gets to your plate,
1: so Andrew, on that topic. i've I've worked in restaurants my entire life, and some of these restaurants were very higher end. You had to understand the menu. you had to memorize the menu. You had to understand what every single ingredient was into a specific sauce. But my knowledge for the food and where it came from stopped when the purveyor arrived and he delivered everything. And so, I'm curious, what is the relationship that you found as you've introduced this to the restaurant staff of those dozens of people that have touched the food before it got to the restaurant?
4: Sure. Well, first of all, between the restaurant and the farmer, uh, and that's usually just the chef, right? I mean, who has that relationship? But many of the farms I profile in this book are small family farms. And those farmers, very often the proprietor of the farm makes the delivery themselves and one of the reasons they do that is to get some face time with the chef to tell them what might be coming in the following week or what might not be coming in or to get a feel for the restaurant uh so there's that and then my biggest education in the book was i spent a day with a delivery truck driver um i never understood how hard it was to be a delivery truck driver in a big city uh there is nowhere to park a truck and you know, I live in New York City. I will never again be upset when I see a delivery truck double parked slowing me down because they have no choice. It is the most stressful job. Um, and my favorite part of the book is the day I spent with this person. I think it's, you know, I tried to report it in kind of a humorous way. It's almost like a reality show. Um, and and then at the farm, you know, there's, uh, the farmer is kind of sharing all of their hard earned knowledge uh with their field workers with their salespeople. I mean it depends how big the farm is sometimes the only person who communicates beyond the farm is the owner of the farm uh but larger farms might have a salesperson or a marketing person um and then there are growing practices that really depend at, like cooking does on handing down knowledge you know showing people over a period of months and years what you're looking for um you know I interview a, a winemaker in the book because the dish has a red wine sauce and um you know he was telling me just by looking at um uh the, the the grapes and the leaves on the vine he can tell if something is a little bit low in vitamin C you know and he can spray it with certain um uh, uh certain additives uh, natural additives that'll take care of it and um yeah, and it's you can really go endlessly into the web of people that come together in, in each ingredient, let alone one dish.
1: It is quite fascinating when you're sitting at the table as as a guest dining in the restaurant, you don't realize how much went into that process to get that food to that plate. Have you noticed in your journey that entire process As a, as a culture, we are very wasteful and the restaurant industry is very wasteful as well. And so did you notice there was a couple gaps, if you will, in the process that could have been eliminated to to help make the process more efficient?
4: Well, um, not in this case, because uh, everyone I profiled in the book is really, well, first of all, they're all operating small businesses, and they're trying to save money wherever they can. Um, But in the restaurant industry, I've seen incredible waste. Um, uh, You know, when people test uh new dishes when they're developing new dishes the amount of vegetables and proteins meaning you know uh meat poultry fish that ends up in the garbage can uh is kind of gross I mean it really actually upsets me um and then to be honest on the customer side you know um uh I'm, I'm talking to you today from my hometown of Miami Florida and you know when I was growing up here it was all about value and huge portions and you know a lot of times half of that stuff ended up in the garbage you know or people would take it home in a styrofoam container and then realize four days later it was still in the fridge and throw it away and um i mean uh, there's a chef in italy named massimo bottura um who's been profiled on chef's table and whatnot <clears throat> and he has started a, a program Uh, he calls them refertorios. they're basically soup kitchens where they around the world they set up these facilities where they collect unused ingredients from restaurants from supermarkets and then they have chefs come in and turn them into meals um, for the less fortunate and these people come in and get actually meals cooked by chefs with all this food that would otherwise be thrown out so uh you know at these few farms and at the restaurant I profiled they run a very lean responsible operations um but in general i think your point is um a really good one because i think it's a widespread problem if you're just
0: joining us on the mountain life we're having a conversation with chef writer andrew friedman his new book is called the dish the lives and labor behind one plate of food and it is so interesting andrew if you think you know of everything it takes to get that uh plate of food to the restaurant. And in in this case, it's a restaurant in Chicago, wherewithal, and then everything after the server removes that plate of food, which as you're talking about, you know, can still have a lot of food on it. And I'm thinking about as we, as the popularity of food shows has really taken off, we as consumers have learned that we probably all ought to encourage restaurants to not just, you know, always have the Chilean sea bass on their menu because that's what we love. But we should, as consumers, say, what's fresh this week? What are your purveyors? You know, what, what do they want to provide? Like it should start in a different place.
4: Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that's a point that's made very poignantly, I think, by the restaurant I profile in the book, which is in Chicago. It's a restaurant called Wherewithal. And they changed their entire menu every week. It was a tasting menu restaurant, meaning everybody had the same meal. It was a series of seven courses. And uh, I have in the book uh, a menu meeting between the chef de cuisine and one of the chef owners where they're starting to concept the menu for the following week. And the chef de cuisine is sitting there with a clipboard with all of the inventory sheets for what each farm they do business with is expecting to have available the next week and that's where their ideation process starts you know with what is going to be fresh coming in from all the farms in the book or within 100 miles of Chicago and that was where they that was where their ideas started and very often they would weave in ingredients uh, from other farms and this dish in the book is a perfect example it utilizes proteins and uh, vegetables and herbs, and because there was a, a red wine sauce, um, a, a wine from a vineyard in Michigan, um, but all this stuff came from roughly within 100 miles of the city, um, and it was all based on what's local, what's fresh, what's seasonal. Um, and I think what they were pulling off at that restaurant on a weekly basis was pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this whole other
0: element which came to light for me, and I'm sure you're aware of this, when I looked up wherewithal this morning in my research and found that they're closed right now because a line burst under the restaurant. And that is a whole other element and, you know, reminiscent in some ways of this this show. (laughs) We've been watching The Bear, which again illuminates everything it takes to put that plate of food on the table um wherewithal a really popular restaurant incredible food and yet trying to stand up against the the basics of a a line bursting underneath the restaurant you know what do they do
4: yeah well i i um uh Spoiler alert! Although you know it's it is in the uh, at the very end of the book. Um, uh, I guess they haven't updated that website, but Wherewithal is closed for good, sadly. Um, and they're open. They, they own that space. The chef owners. They're opening a new restaurant in that space um, with a, a new concept, a modern Ukrainian restaurant, actually. Um, But yeah you know we all learned um if we were reading the news in the early days of the pandemic uh in march of 2020 when the you know the quote-unquote lockdown happened and restaurants were closing uh at a fever pitch because their margins are so tight there is such a fear um of causing sticker shock amongst their guests or their customers um that a lot of people think you know if you go out for a nice meal you know that it's it's too expensive. Um, when you're dealing with kind of a mid midsize independent restaurant, like the one I write about in the book, the prices are actually artificially depressed, they're actually cost less than they should, you know, the rate of menu pricing has gone up much slower than the rate of inflation for the last 10 or 15 years. And as a result, any curveball can take a restaurant out You know, it's like being hit by a meteor. So that's why we saw in the early days of the pandemic, and we all learned, you know, they couldn't even, restaurants couldn't even make payroll for a week if they didn't have any income. There was no money in the bank. Um, And uh, most people I know who tried to make an adjustment for that, you know, coming out of the pandemic, raised their prices by about 30%. Um, So it creates a really vulnerable position and the book takes place on a night of service in July of 2021. That was about 15 months into the pandemic and 100,000 restaurants had closed in this country alone in those 15 months. It's
1: really tough. And as a consumer, you've started to see those rise in the prices as well, but unfortunately it's just been tougher and tougher to find good staff. And so sometimes the, the, the quality of the service and the food has gone down, which is not a reflection of the prices. You what, you said something about the the delivery truck parking. You'll never get mad at a delivery truck. I work in construction. And so I have that empathy for when I pull up and there's a guy with a road sign. I'm like, they're just doing their job. They got to get it done. And so what is what is one of the biggest takeaways and the things you've learned when writing this book about the, this industry?
4: Well, first of all, to the point you just made, you know, one of the, I did have this dream that was referred to at the beginning of the interview. I did wake up one day with this idea, but, you know, uh, We've all seen it. I I think it sometimes breaks down along the lines of who has worked in the service industry and who hasn't. Um, But we all have friends or acquaintances who we've seen not be particularly nice uh, or empathetic to restaurant workers um, or to postal delivery people or to anybody in, you know, kind of a a position that's, I hate to use this word, but subordinate to them or where they have some kind of power over that person. it's, It's such a game changer for me in the way I think about people. Um, And I really wanted people to see all of these workers as three-dimensional people, you know, who who have lives that are as challenging and complicated and interesting as your own. Um, That sounds like a weird thing to have to say, but I think it's necessary. My takeaway was as much time as I've spent observing in kitchens over the last 25 years, um, the amount of coordination it takes to have food come out of a kitchen when each table is ready for their next course. The amount of constant communication is astounding. You know, I tell the story. I don't just write a series of profiles in the book. It's told during a service with sort of breakaway profiles as we go along. So you get to see how a service works, what the mechanics of it are. And I had never had an opportunity to track it in that much detail. That was amazing to me. And I have to say, I really didn't know just how many people were involved in each ingredient? I mean, I'd been to a lot of farms. I had never been to a meat processing plant, which I do in this book. You know, for that little four ounce portion of strip loin, there's probably about two dozen people on that end alone before it gets to the restaurant who have touched it, whether it's feeding the cattle uh, out in the field, whether it's getting the cattle from the field uh, to the slaughterhouse, whether it's doing the actual slaughtering, whether it's maintaining uh the the aging room at the right temperature and then the butchering and then the delivery and and that's just for the meat you know that's just for one ingredient on one dish in a restaurant and and I didn't even mention the USDA inspector for whom you know they have to provide an office and a telephone so you know you add all of that up and again to me it really brought home what I said before the pricing issue I just You know, anyone who look maybe at the very, very, very high end, three-star Michelin restaurants, yes, that's incredibly expensive. But these independent places, even these sort of, you know, chef-driven or quote-unquote fine dining restaurants, uh, at the mid-level, the smaller independent ones, they're not overcharging you. They're not trying to put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. You know, nothing makes these people crazier than when a customer comes in, and says, how come your salmon dish is $32 and the salmon dish down the road, this other restaurant is $22? Well, part of that answer is the more expensive place is probably sourcing the way the the restaurant in this book does and not getting everything off the truck of like a national restaurant supply company. They're getting it directly from farmers. And the other part of the reason may be as the restaurant I profiled in the book did, uh they may be offering more benefits to their staff you know you, you know a lot there are a lot of things restaurants aren't required to do that other industries are you know you're not guaranteed health insurance as a shift worker in a restaurant a lot of restaurants do it but that's an expense you know and these things add up so nobody wants to be on the 32 dollars side of that salmon equation that I just described they don't have a choice and probably that salmon dish should be 35 or 38 dollars
1: you're not wrong, and as we were talking about earlier, there there's just a disconnect of the customer at that table when they don't realize what goes into it. So on that note, I'm just curious of all the facets that touch the product to the to the end consumer. What do you think is the the biggest, the most underappreciated portion of that entire process? Uh,
4: just on the farm end, or in the restaurant as well?
1: From A to Z, what from from planting um, the seed to to delivering the food at the at the table.
4: Uh, Well, here are the three takeaways I had. I'll be quick. Um, One is, for example, I profile a farm in the book, uh, Butternut Sustainable Farm in Michigan, very well-respected farm, very well-liked farmer named John Templin. He makes his deliveries himself. He starts uh, his delivery day every Wednesday at 6 a.m. packing the truck. He gets back to his home in Michigan at about 10 p.m. That is an unbelievably long day. And he's not, I mean, he's not old, but he's, you know, about 40. So, but the other factor of that is they have to make those deliveries, right? The restaurant industry is a show must go on industry. So part of that is ingredients have to get to the restaurant. So if there's a downpour on Friday, he and his team can wait that out. If there is a downpour on Tuesday, the day before delivery day, they are out in the rain with ponchos in the mud, Making whatever, getting whatever last things they need to get out of the field in order to make those deliveries on Wednesday, and and that is there's no option. Whatever is coming down, they're in it. Then there's the delivery truck driver who I mentioned. I that's I always say that's the one job in the book I do not think I could do. I'm just just I'm personally metabolically incapable of breaking that many rules of needing that much help from total strangers. Uh, Mark Hofmeister, who's the guy I profile in the book, is one of my heroes now. He does it with absolute casualness. He loves the challenge. He loves he loves his work. You know, that's the other one. And then the big one, which I, this was no surprise to me, but I hope readers come away appreciating it, is the dishwashers. I, I think most people don't even give a thought to the fact that you know, there's probably one to three human beings doing that job during a a dinner service. You know, we've all seen these old movies where somebody can't pay for dinner and they, they make up clean dishes at the end of the night. Well, in reality, dishes don't get cleaned at the end of the night. Restaurants don't have a set of dishes for every customer. Dishes are constantly being recycled during a service, right? So, and it's all very super sanitized you know dishes go back they get put in a machine called a wear washer which which blasts them with heat they're sanitized but before they go in there they're cleaned by a person and when they come out they're dried glasses will have little streaks and stains rubbed out of them uh, there's a position in this restaurant i profile called the polisher that's a job uh and then they're brought back uh to the kitchen and if the dish department falls behind the entire line goes down. You know, if you don't have dishes, bowls, cups, glasses, you can't serve food. Um, And that is an unbelievably important job. Everyone in the restaurant industry knows that. I don't think people outside the industry give it a moment's thought, you know, and very often these are people, you know, who are immigrants, who are not making a huge salary, but but who are indispensable. And I make the point in the book that, You know, at a restaurant like the one I profile, most of the people cooking in that kitchen want to be a chef themselves one day. You know, they're there to learn. They're there to advance. uh, They have dreams of being chef owners someday. Very often, the dishwashers are in it for life. And it is very common that a chef, as they move from job to job, will try to keep a dishwasher with them for as long as, you know, to have them come along. And I know chefs who have had dishwashers come with them from restaurant to restaurant for 20 to 30 years. That's how important that job is. And I, again, that that for, I hope for readers, that to me is the one people probably never thought about for a second.
0: Yeah. Andrew, we're just about out of time, but I think I read somewhere along the way that you teach a course at the Culinary Institute of America. What is that?
4: Oh, thanks for asking about that. Um, it's a relatively new course. Um, I'm actually in the middle of my first semester ever doing it. To my everlasting amazement, they came to me and asked me um, to do this. I didn't apply for this job. I mean, I had to go through a process after they asked me. Uh, It has a fancier name than this, but essentially it's a course in chef and restaurant history uh, focused on the West, on Europe and the United States. The last book I wrote was called Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. And it was about the American restaurant chefs of the 70s and 80s, But to tell that story, I also had to learn a lot about, you know, movements that had come before that. And I think that's what got them thinking about asking me to come on. But that's been, it's a remote course, or I wouldn't be able to do it. You know, the CIA is a couple of hours from my home in Brooklyn, New York. CIA is short for Culinary Institute of America. Uh, But that's what the course is. And it's been a lot of fun developing it. And that's really great. Well, after your book
0: tour, it'd be fun to have you back on to just talk about one element of all of the different ones that you have talked about in your book. Namely, I just think it's so interesting to explore this very current topic of servers being tipped versus this movement of not being tipped. But we'll have you
4: back on to talk about that (laughs) yeah thank you that's that's uh that's not a 30 second final answer i I can't possibly address the complexities here but i would love to come back thank you this has been great
0: the book is the dish the lives and labor behind one plate of food our guest is andrew friedman andrew thank you so much for your time today
4: thank you very much for having me
0: and thanks for tuning in to the mountain life here on kpcw park city and tune in next week to the mountain life wednesday at 9 a.m we speak with chuck wisner he is a consultant on the art of conscious conversations how can we truly be a good listener how can we dialogue and converse more effectively then have you ever felt like you want to make a difference in your community but you just seem to spend your energy preaching to the choir we speak with author and activism coach um Kari Williams all about microactivism